This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Whether you are watching this live on YouTube or Facebook or somewhere else, or... You are listening to this on our brand spanking new exciting podcast, which is so exciting and I'm very excited about and it's doing very well because of you. It is really cold. It's just terribly cold. We are going to warm you up tonight, the cockles of your heart with incisive political analysis. It's going to be really good, actually. I'm actually very excited about this show because it's going to be lively. It's going to be thoughtful. We're going to bombard you with loads of interesting facts. I'm going to learn stuff. You're going to learn stuff. It's going to be great. My cat, I've just realized, is going to steal the show. I was warned to take the cat out. I was warned to take the show. If you're listening, my cat has invaded the studio, which is, of course, my living room. Anyway, we march. Um, Today, we are talking about the Labour Party. Why not? I don't know what I've done in a previous life to be cursed to have to talk about the Labour Party as a essentially one of the pillars of my job. And that is also the case with two of the uh, three of the guests that I have today as well. Uh, that is, uh, we must have done something pretty heinous in a past life. Uh, what we're talking about is we're talking about the fact we are living, I'm sure you've noticed, through a terrible national emergency, which has horrifically killed uh, around 115,000 to 120,000 of our fellow citizens. Uh, one of the worst death tolls on earth, the worst death rate other than Uh, Slovenia and Belgium. And yet, Labour is not ahead in the polls. In fact, Labour is doing worse on average than it won in 2017, the election which has been erased from history. It never happened. Um, And also, uh, it's worse on average than the polling Labour had between June 2017 and the beginning of 2019. However, Keir Starmer does have the best leadership ratings of any Labour leader for over a decade. I say that because we do stick to the facts. And that is an important fact. And we're going to talk about where this all slots in. What is Labour's vision? We did talk about this last week with two other guests, but we're going to talk about that again. What should the left strategy be and the Labour strategy during a, not just a pandemic, but of course, the gravest economic and social crisis since World War II? And of course, Labour last time did have this particular approach to the end of that national emergency. Once you win the war, you win the peace. So enough of me babbling. Let's bring in our first guests. We are going to start with the one, the only, the fabulous, the super... I'm getting camped, I swear, as I got older. Carl Chauvin, who is Head of Strategic Communications at Servation, which is, of course, one of our leading pollsters. Hello, Carl. How you doing? Hi, Owen. I think you slightly overhyped me there. I, I, do you know what? I don't think I hyped you enough, actually, Carl, to be honest with you. Uh, Carl is one of the nicest guys I've met in politics. Politics does not always attract the nicest people, though. But I'm just saying, and also a big brain. And that's what we're doing today. We are feasting on your brain, Carl. Okay. I'm going to start feasting. I'm going to get some tasty morsels. Um, To begin with, okay, so how is it? Just do a general summary. How's Labour doing right now? All right. I mean, first of all, I think some of your sort of, your introduction, you know, why why aren't Labour further ahead in the polls or ahead at all? 
I think that's slightly misconstrued because I think um, if you spend all day on social media and sort of Twitter, you'd think the government's handling of COVID has been a disaster. Um, Labour should be ahead, should be 10 points ahead or so. But I mean, actually, I don't think it quite works like that. Um, so, I mean, just I'll, I'll go on to that. But we've had for months effectively a stalemate with both main parties being effectively tied, perhaps the Conservatives just slightly ahead, a couple of points ahead. Um, in the last week to two weeks, that, that has changed and the Conservatives have gone, I think, on average, about five points ahead. So they are now kind of quite comfortably in the early 40s, 41, 42, with Labour pegged back a little bit to 36 or 37. Um, and I think also something that's worth noting is that Keir Starmer does have good leadership ratings. But in the last month to two months, they've started slowly to drop back a little bit. Um, and I think, I think from our research, from, our, from the focus groups that we run, you're beginning to see some of the shine, um, which was there at first, slip, slip into people talking about a bit indecisive, differing, and Boris Johnson's um, hindsight attack has also started to cut through. So I think what you're starting to see is, so, so, I mean, let, 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 let's, be, let's be quite frank. When Keir Starmer replaced Jeremy Corbyn, he's the sort of, was the polar opposite. Keir Starmer is someone that looks like a prime minister, talks like a prime minister, he dresses like a prime minister. And after the boom and busts of the Corbyn era, I think for a lot of Labour voters in particular, that was a nice welcome change. But I think what you're beginning to see now is people have banked that and they say, yeah, you look like a prime minister, but what else are you going to do? So people are starting to ask questions about the sort of future vision. What, what does the post-COVID, post-Brexit economy look like? So I think that's why you're beginning to see a slight downturn in the ratings. And I think that has, that has caused, caused Labour's poll ratings to rise. It stalled it. Do you think, I mean, if we look at the United States, some would say yeah. the pandemic actually, you know, I mean, we talk about Biden's victories, this huge sovereign present as a landslide, actually a 2% swing in Trump's direction would have secured the presidency, however unfairly, because he still mm. would have lost the popular vote again, but he would have got the presidency on a 2% swing. Uh, in the other direction. And the pandemic obviously had a big role there. The Democrats did pin, they put everything into pinning the pandemic on the, on the government. Now, did that, do you think that's one of, I mean, is this what, you know, a lot of people around the top of the Labour leadership and their sympathisers would say, easy for you to go, blah, blah, blah. Isn't the government terrible? You can say what you want. We have to deal with a situation where people think of a national emergency, don't attack the pilot while the plane is crashing. Um, and actually, we've had to play it very carefully. But Others would say by not challenging the government and panning, pinning the pandemic on it, it has a impact on public opinion because people then think, well, if even Labour aren't calling them out and I'm not hearing the argument, a story in the way the Tories wove a story about the financial crash being Labour's fault, which it wasn't, but we won't get into that. Because that story isn't there about why we have one of the worst death tolls on earth, that's said, created a bit of resignation, a bit of, well, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. They could have done this or that differently, but who'd want to be them? What do you think? 
I mean, I think I think what what you're like partially identifying is a big difference between American and British politics. So um, certainly in the Trump era, the you know the chasm between the two tribes, if you like, was actually much greater than it is in Britain. Um, and I mean, I think what I would say about about this is most although most voters or more voters than not think the government's handling of the of covid has been poor or disappointing they express dissatisfaction that has never really slipped into how people um say they're going to vote so it hasn't really had a big voting intention change i I, th- I think people um don't at heart blame the government um whether they should or not is, is you know is a different issue but i think i think people sort of think you know they're doing their best um even if they can criticize particular failures which you know which they, which there clearly have been and i think with the uptick in the last two weeks or so i think that's clearly a vaccine bounce and in a way i think the fact that there's a perception of incompetence throughout the previous handling. So like over the protective equipment and over test and trace, people are quite surprised and sort of pleasantly surprised that the rollout of the vaccine ha- appears to be going so well. So I think that, so I think there wasn't a particular negative over incompetencies, but I think that's led to a particular buzz and positivity when something is seen to go well. And I, and I also think, you know, some of the stuff with the EU and, and Brexit and the vaccine in the last week or so has made people that support Brexit that much more supportive. So they're saying, um, you know, this is this is a major advantage of Brexit. What would have happened if we're still in the EU, regard, regardless of what the sort of truth and, and details of that are. But that, that is definitely what's come, what's come what's cut through. A lot of people around, I think, at the top of the Labour leadership, their view is that Labour, above all else, need to win back, I would say, older white voters in marginal seats, particularly those that were once held by the Labour Party in the so-called Red Wall. And that means going big on credibility, on competence and on patriotism. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. The flag, basically, is what I'm asking. You want to know about the flag? I mean, uh, can I I just... So I, I... I think there's a couple of different things there. So I think in terms of the political strategy, I think Keir Starmer and you know, the Labour leadership is absolutely correct that the key, in, all, you know, in order to be electable, Labour has to win back older white working class voters that have frankly been slipping away from, from Labour for a generation. Um, you know, it, Brexit exacerbated that put rocket boosters onto that and you know the the tide was slightly reversed or slowed in 2017 um so i think i mean in terms of you know we people can argue about this but in terms of where the voters are where the seats that labor needs to win now are that strategy is absolutely correct and i, I totally agree with that um in terms of how you do it i agree with with some of what's being suggested and are slightly more critical of some other things that are being suggested. So the, the flag, right? So let, let, let's unpick that a bit. 
I, I do think patriotism is an issue that Labour needs to address. Um, and kind of every Labour leader in the last 15 years, at some stage in the electoral cycle, has turned to this. Um, but how how do you how so so I, I mean actually I've got no problem with the flag. It doesn't bother me, and it it, it could do slightly more good than harm. But you know, frankly, we're not America um, or France. We're not one of the major republics where the flag is something that people are used to waving around in politics. You know, people, the, I, 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 and I think there's a risk that if you use the flag too much, you're in danger of telling and explaining rather than doing. And there is a risk that it looks all inauthentic. OK, but I've got I've got no principled problem with using the flag at all. And patriotism is a is something that Labour needs to address. I, I don't think we can that that should that should be denied where, where I think Labour may be going wrong or is in danger of missing the point is, is it planning to fight the last war? So just, I'll just very briefly explain if I can. Um, the, in, the, in the leaked strategy document from the agency, the, the branding, branding document, there was quite a lot about ways in which you win back red wall voters. And it's clear that focus groups have been done where people have said Labour spent too much, um, Gordon sold the gold. And I, I, you know, I acknowledge that we, you get that in focus groups. No doubt about that. That's been in Labour focus groups for 10 years. Um, but what I would seriously question, because we, we've been doing focus groups um, in the last year, on various causes around the economy, um, social change, for you know, and with red wall voters. And yes, they talk about labour and the economy. They talk about not trusting labour on the economy, but it's not as salient as it was 10 years ago. Mm. So when, you know, in, in 2012 and 2013, it, it was a really big issue which played on people's minds and it scared people about labour. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't now. It, it's it's an it, it's an afterthought. And when you when you go into more depth with people, especially in the red wall, people are actually favouring high public spending over paying off the deficit. They're favouring taxes on the rich, really 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 popular over tax cuts. They're favouring public ownership in various different forms. So I, I do wonder if Labour is in danger of fighting the last war and not, I mean, you know, this, this Conservative government is not the same as the David Cameron or even Theresa May government. In the last week, um, the Tories have briefed that they're going to slap a, a um, wealth tax on Google and Facebook. They've shown that they're going to reverse some most of the Andrew Lansley reforms. This is a Conservative government that could quite easily outflank Labour on some of these big, more radical economic issues. And if Labour starts to move and starts to over worry about how it's perceived in terms of some of those traditional political indicators around competence, Labour could find itself outflanked in a, in a you know, and at the end of the day, the red wall voters want change and in the last election 
the Conservatives convinced them they were offering more change. And that, you know, Labour should be very careful that that doesn't happen again. Just finally then, just, just quick finally, how worried should Labour be about the Greens? In some polls, the Greens are going up. Also, Keir Starmer's overall leader ratings are, are good. That's unquestionably the case, particularly uh, compared to the last 10 years. But the underlying data shows that young people are not particularly keen on Keir Starmer. Uh, there was one poll that showed a 16-point deficit in approval ratings amongst the uh, amongst the under 35s. And finally, Nickelodeon 81 asks, how reliable are polls this far from the election anyway? So my feeling is that Labour shouldn't be particularly worried about the Greens um, in electoral terms. There are issues around it, which they perhaps should be more worried about. Um, if you, if you, you know, just going back a few minutes to when we were talking about the political strategy of winning back working class, slightly older voters in the North Midlands, you know, parts of southern southern England, which we often forget about. We often forget about Kent, for example. Um, I mean, one of one of the things that Labour should be more concerned about is actually most of the votes that they have won back since the election appear to come from Liberal Democrats. Um, and, very, you know, the numbers of votes they've won back from either people that didn't vote Labour in the last election or voted Conservative from Labour is, is, is too small. So in a sense, that, that strategy isn't working yet. Um, in terms, I mean, in terms of Labour is losing votes to the Greens. I think the Greens have overtaken the Liberal Democrats in some polls in the last few days. Um, partly, I think, because the Liberal Democrats are not even on the field at the moment. I think I strongly suspect the majority of voters don't even know who the Liberal Democrat leader is. Um, so it's not surprising that they're not going to vote for them at the moment. Um, I. If, if if Labour voters, I mean, it's it's when we talk about political strategy of winning back working class older voters in the north, that is absolutely that can only work if the younger coalition, more graduates in cities, stays intact. So Labour needs both parts of the coalition. One's been easier and more. Um, you know, be, be much more attracted to Labour in recent years than the other. Um, you know, my, my suspicion is that because of our electoral system, the Greens would get quite heavily squeezed at a general election as, as they as they always do. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't over worry about the actual votes at the moment and what you see in the polls. But I would be worried about the reasons why that might be happening. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's you know, the, the gold standard political strategy is, is one which unites both those parts of the coalition. Carl, that was fantastic. A real polling tour de force. Pleasure. Thank From you, Owen. Asking, by the way, Carl used to be director of strategy at under Corbyn of the Labour Party. So I just, did. Just so people, yeah, no, it's just uh, interesting. I mean, you are a brilliant pollster in your own right. Just some people yeah. are going, oh, this has got a bit centrist, Dad. So I was just telling well, you. Yeah, you know. I am I am I am a bit. I um I also worked for Tony Blair fifteen years ago. Um and Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn, who can put that on your CV? Not not many people and musically I love Bruce Springsteen and I think he's been stitched up for 
whatever it is he's being accused of at the moment. So I, I don't even know, know what that I'm, is. I'm, I'm, I'm culturally quite centrist, Dad. Uh, Carl, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We pleasure. really appreciate your speech you see. All right. So that's a bit of setting scene, polling wise. And now I'm going to bring in two amazing, very exciting guests to have. Uh, and that is, of course, Grace Blakely, author, journalist, the host of A Will to Win. Everyone check out the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to see you. It's very nice to see you. Yeah, it's very surreal watching people that normally we could just go and get drunk in the pub. And we can't just legally. Jeremy Gilbert, cultural theorist, political analyst, just a great guy as well. But also many, many things. Great to see you. Hi, yeah. Hi, Bo. Good to see you. How- how are we all doing? Should we just have a little? Apparently, if I was going to be cool, I'm not. As you can see, I'm not cool in any sense. Vibe check. That's what people right. say. <laughs> so should, I do a, should I do a vibe check? Can I get away with saying that? Let's do a vibe check. How are we? Good vibes only. Um, <laughs> no, fine. Like other than the general context, which kind of precludes being able to vibe off anyone else. My own vibes are, you know, I'd say I'd say okay, average. Always got, great, always got great vibes, Grace. Jeremy, <laughs> how are we doing? Uh, well, my life revolves around homeschool at the moment, which is, you know, it's different. <laughs> Makes changes as good as the rest. So. Yeah, I can, I mean, the horror. I've, I've got one friend who, his, his wife's a doctor, got called up at the beginning during maternity leave. They've got a kid, zero, three, and five, and he had to look after them for months on his own. Ooh, right. So to kick off, I'm going to show, <laughs> going to start, we're talking, of course, about Labour, Labour's position, why isn't it doing better? What's its vision? But also, we're just going to look at the nuances and talk about it from a left perspective. What I'm going to kick off, though, I think this is quite, it's quite, it's, it's funny. Let's indulge it. Let's, let's start with it. A certain right-wing website, I'm not going to name, has been running a campaign to prove that Keir Starmer is actually a secret raging rampant revolutionary socialist. And uh, that includes picking up uh, something he said 16 years ago about how he used to be a reporter even 16 years ago, talking about the past tense. But the latest was a clip which I was extremely excited about. I was like, be still my beating heart, in which he allegedly was calling for the overthrow of capitalism. Let's have a look at that clip. It used to be the case that in the Labour Party, particularly in the Blair years, no one would say we're a socialist party. Now everybody says we're a socialist party. Uh, That's a good thing. But there's very few people as yet saying, and by the way, that entails replacing capitalism. Would you be comfortable saying that? Well... I describe myself as a moral socialist, mm-hmm. um, and what I mean by that is that uh, I profoundly believe that if we're to get out of the difficulties we're in, we've got um, gross inequality, we've got to take radical action. The, the theory that um, if you leave the market ar- alone, wealth will trickle down is a busted myth. If that were the case, we wouldn't have the inequality that we've got, and I don't just mean wealth and income. Um, as you'll know, health inequality yeah. has gone through the roof. Age um, expectancy, life expectancy has gone down in some parts of 21st century Britain. And there can be 10, 14 years life expectancy yeah. difference between different areas. If you're going to deal with that, you've got to do pretty fundamental things. And I think we've got to have the courage to say the economic system, the free market economic system is busted. It needs to be replaced with a new economic system where model where government sets the direction and sets the framework. I actually think good businesses would work with that. Uh-huh. You know, look at the, the key or some of the key problems in our economy. Short-term investment for quick returns is killing our economy. So you need long-term investment. Poor conditions, poor pay, insecure work. 
is killing our economy and we're destroying the environment in the way we run the economy. Well, the government's got to do something about that. I should say that was in conversation with Jamie Driscoll, who is the fantastic Labour Metro Mayor of the North of Time Combined Authority. Didn't quite, I'm afraid, live up to the billing. He wasn't calling for the overall councillors. There was nothing wrong, by the way, with that answer in, 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 in its own terms. Uh, it was during the leadership contest last year. What I want to do is start by asking you, but I'd be interested in your, just your response to that. And again, I'm not doing a direct comparison with Tony Blair, but it's in, in the 1994 leadership election, there were three candidates. The only leadership candidate, uh, there was Margaret Beckett, John Prescott, who called himself a socialist on his mini manifesto was Tony Blair, who called himself an ethical socialist and then yeah. redefined socialism to basically mean motherhood and apple pie. But what I want to ask, I'm going to set you a little challenge, both of you. What is the Starmer project as you understand it? So not doing it in a kind of tear it down as you understand what they are trying to do. Great. Start with you. Okay. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I think that was that, that thing that we just heard from Starmer was really interesting because it speaks a lot to the way that the kind of liberal left understands what capitalism is and the problems that it creates. Now, it's very, you know, important to understand what he says when he, what he means. He says that, um, you know, he sees himself as a moral socialist, like Tony Blair, a kind of ethical socialist. Um, this basically takes most of the meat out of um, the kind of analysis of capitalism upon which socialism, socialist thought is based by basically removing the elements of it that are to do with class struggle. And this is really the importance of this kind of liberal way of looking at the world, which is not about kind of separating society off into different groups of kind of competing um, interests, but which is actually about having this idea of the kind of general good and thinking, you know, it's a very kind of utilitarian approach is the reason these, these philosophies come out at the same time. Um, so, you know, this this whole idea that capitalism at the moment is not generating the general good, so we need to change it, is very central to kind of social democratic, kind of the Fabian tradition in, in the UK, which is kind of where I think uh, Keir, Starmer, Keir Starmer sits, although whether or not that project is the same as this one is, I think, uh, a different question. Then I think we have this issue about, like, what is capitalism? And that whole reading of the world comes down to a definition of capitalism, which basically equates it with free markets. So Starmer was saying, we don't want this free market model um, because, you know, it's, it generates these inequalities and, uh, and it's unsustainable. Um, and actually, you know, the kind of elision of free markets with, uh, with, with capitalism, which is actually a system of, of the domination of labor by capital the domination of the majority by a small minority is a really important again part of the ideology um it's again stripping out this element of struggle this element of kind of you know there are some people who benefit from this system and those are the interests that we're going to need to actively take on if we're ever going to change anything that element is completely stripped out of this kind of liberal understanding of, of both capitalism and uh, and socialism so on those terms um you know the way i understand starmerism i think and i'm sure jeremy will actually say a, a bit more about this and more coherently there's an element of it that i think is a kind of rebellion of, of the, the late bureaucracy as a system so um you know there was uh a period obviously over the last five years where it looked as though um the labor party was kind of lost um from the hands of, of reasonable liberals who didn't want to use it as a vehicle to promote class struggle um and this is a kind of reaction to that but I think it's, it's a combination of that with a profound inability to understand the nature of the kind of organic crisis that we're living through. And that organic crisis, meaning the, um, the kind of the, uh, the overarching um, 
system that we are living in, the kind of political economy, um, the political economic moment that, that we're living through uh, is creating, is throwing up a bunch of problems and contradictions that are potentially eroding the power and dominance of, uh, of the ruling class, of those who benefit from the system. But the absence of that very important other element, which would be required to actually change things, which is the organized power of the working classes, is still missing and that question those questions i mean that 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 statement really conceals a lot more important questions around which debate on the left is is centering today which is you know what is who is the revolutionary subject what is the revolutionary subject what is the political subject that is going to deliver that change how do we organize them um what exactly does this organic crisis of capitalism consist in um so yeah, it's 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 liberal profoundly, uh, but it kind of misunderstands the, uh, the the really deep, profound problems that we're living through, and the fact that they can't really be be kind of fixed um, through liberal solutions, which rest on this idea of the general interest. You know, to get through this moment, um, the the kind of interests that benefit from the way things are now, we're going to have to basically struggle against them. How do you, Jeremy, how do you understand Starmerism, if we can call it Starmerism, I'd be interested in and what do you think it's trying to achieve on its own terms? Okay, well, to answer that question, I think clearly what they, what's the Starmerites, if there are such a thing, and what Starmer and the, his immediate circle of advisors think they are doing, is they are think they are, as Carl said earlier, they are trying to win an election, and they think that they recognise that under the first past the post system, the only way Labour could get back to a, could get a parliamentary majority is by winning over people who voted Conservative at the last election, really at the last two elections, and so that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to win over those voters. Um, on the other hand, I agree with Grace completely, and I, I've said on several occasions previously in other contexts that I think. Broadly speaking, I, I don't think that anybody involved in supporting Starmer and his project in the broader party or the party machine or the parliamentary Labour Party, I don't think there are many people who can really believe that they're going to succeed in doing that. And I think broadly they are supporting what Starmer is doing because they see it as a way of shoring up their own shaky majorities in Redwall, the Redwall adjacent seats, or shoring up their positions in the party bureaucracy as local councillors, etc. I don't really think for most of the people involved, actually, um, a Labour victory is the first thing they're thinking about. I think the first thing they're thinking about is we got absolutely terrified by this wave of left-wing activism which threatened to take our jobs and take our council seats and take our, even take our parliamentary seats from us and we want to do whatever is necessary and create whatever justifications we can for pushing the left out of the party and holding on to what we've got. Um, I, don't, I think, I, I mean, I agree with everything Grace said, and, and you know, watching that clip, I was really reminded of, I mean, many years ago now, I was in a meeting uh, with a group of activists and a couple of Labour ministers during the, the dying days of the Gordon Brown government. And one thing I was really struck by in that meeting was the extent to which the two ministers who we were talking to had a very specific conception of what made them different from the Tories. And it was precisely what Starmer was giving voice to in that clip. They think that what makes them different from the Tories is they think the Tories are these sort of early Victorian laissez-faire liberals who literally think we should let the, the poor starve in the streets. And because they don't, they're not going to do that, they're good guys. Um, and it's just, A, it's wrong. It's wrong about what capitalism is, because as Grace said, the word capitalism, brothers and sisters, please let us remember, the word capitalism does not designate 
market the market economy that the, the two words just don't mean the same thing what the word capitalism refers to is the accumulation of capital capital a capitalist society is one in which the accumulation of vast profit not everyday profits by you know successful moderately sized companies but vast unlimited profit by billionaires and their corporations is the overriding priority of the entire social and economic and political system that's what the word capitalism means um it doesn't just mean free markets and the, the the biggest problem coming you know back to a slightly less on a slightly less abstract level the biggest problem is the one that carl did allude to but i think we should probably focus on a bit more which is well the tories are not the 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 tory party has never been hasn't been since the 1870s and certainly is not now the party of you know the 80 a party of you know the early victorian liberals who want to let the poor starve in the street that is not their ideology that is not their project and if that is not their project then it's really not clear what starmer is proposing as an alternative to the current iteration of conservatism and this is the basic problem this is the big problem really the problem is everything starmer is proposing to do for these oh, these aging former labor voting red wall voters the tories are already doing and, and are going to do more of and they can afford to do more of they can afford to target their resources and their project to those particular voters more than the labor party can because they can you know they can give that particular group of aging voters everything they want um, including shoring up the values of their houses shoring up the values of their pensions including some of the cultural stuff some of the, you know the, the the labor leadership has always been found very hard to deliver convincingly so the the question is not really in theory would this be the right way to win an election the, the question is is there any conceivable way this can actually work faced with the current iteration of conservatism i mean grace that's one thing just to, i think it's a really important point to build on that which is i mean if, if these are not the osborne or cameron tories and they're not the tories of the 1990s so in the 1990s new labor had a political model which was based on the idea that financialized capitalism unsustainable as it was would deliver growth which they would distribute and funnel into public services and uh Obviously, that model is dead because our economic system is in is in huge turmoil and crisis. Uh, but when they offered, you know, they didn't have specific policy offers. They said, "We're going to introduce a minimum wage. We're going to have a um, a landfall, a landfall, a, a a windfall tax on privatized utilities." Uh, and then we're going to do socially liberal stuff on gay rights and we're going to devolve power through constitutional devolution in Scotland and in Wales and in England if we can. Well, didn't work very well. But the difference now is if Labour offer mildly interventionist policies on the economy, the Tories go, well, we'll just take that. We'll water it down and we'll do it in our own particularly Tory way. But the, the, it, there won't be a sufficient demarcation between what you're proposing and what we are actually doing to inspire people enough. Do you, I mean, what do you think? I mean, that basically, I think, cuts to the biggest problem that we've had kind of at the heart of the left in the UK, but kind of generally around the world particularly since the financial crisis, but actually a much broader problem over the last several decades, which is that, you know, we have been placed in a situation where um, that understanding of capitalism as a kind of free market project, um, as understanding neoliberalism as the kind of particular um, 
you know, kind of regime um, under which we live as one which depends upon the shrinking of the state, the retreat of the state from the realm of the economy. Again, that very understanding itself premised upon this idea that there's economics over here and politics over here, uh, the state over here, markets over here, and that this kind of intervening in that one. Um, It has left the left in a position where, you know, we are characterizing the conservatives as the free market, neoliberal, um, small state uh, bad guys, right? Who, as Jeremy said, kind of want to leave people in poor houses and like all that sort of ridiculous stuff. And the left, thereby, comes to be, um, you know, the the the, the set of uh, well, the kind of set of uh, of institutions that that are defending the state and state intervention in the economy. And that's really where you know this, these problems emerge because neoliberal neoliberalism was never about the state shrinking. It was about a reorientation of state power away from a kind of more corporatist model of economic management towards one which was much more focused upon serving the interests of um, of capital in general and a particular section of capital um, as well. And I think that um, understanding is premised upon this idea that we can't understand the state as this thing out there, which we can grab onto, use, redirect in whatever way we want to, the state is itself a site of class struggle. The class struggles that are taking place outside of the state are also taking place within the state. Um, And so the kind of rebalancing of class power that we saw for a whole number of different reasons uh, between the kind of 60s and uh, and 90s um, was itself manifested in um, a different, as I said, kind of orientation of the state, not a a shrinking of the state, far from it, actually. The kind of level of financialization that we saw during during that period would have been utterly impossible without the actual intervention of the state within markets on a number of different levels. Um, you know, those kinds of you know, financial activity broadly is, is highly dependent upon state regulation um, on, you know, the state um, basically giving over the right to create currency and loans and all those sorts of things to the, the finance sector and then standing ready to support that sector if and when a crisis does emerge. Um, so, yeah, the left's kind of been left in this position where we're kind of constantly defending the state. And intuitively, most people understand that state elites are elites. They're part of the ruling class. Um, and that, you know, uh, a lot of what, a lot of the policies that are undertaken within the state uh, and by the state, by different areas of the state apparatus are done in coordination with various different elements of capital. Um, so, you know, leaning back on on this kind of, framework that we have to understand the world which is states over here markets over here politics over here economics over here the left is the side of of the states the right is the side of the market just leaves us in this situation where we're completely uh, unable to um describe what is going on in this current moment let alone actually understand it when the needs of capital have changed and so state policy has changed and indeed this has been something that's been taking place for quite some time whereas you know in the pre-crisis period it might have been ideologically convenient to say oh the state is retreating we're leaving everything up to the market whilst actually not doing that whilst doing the opposite and indeed you know that ideology was obviously extended in the the post crisis period to great and very, very powerful effects, of course, during the, the, the period of austerity. What has been very interesting to watch is how the Conservative Party has managed to reorient itself very quickly in historical terms, away from the promotion of that kind of set of ideologies and discourses towards one where it's saying, well, actually, no, you know, we need a bit more state intervention. We need to make the economy fairer. We need to, you know, support corporations. We need to have the furlough scheme. We need to, you know, um, uh, and, you know, in the realm of monetary policy, it's even more obvious, although obviously less discussed with things like quantitative easing. We live in a world where 
um, you know, the needs of capital are such that the Conservative Party is able and in fact under pressure to extend um, its active, you know, the active intervention of the state in the economy. And that is the real problem. And I think the, the, the question, which I'm sure we can come back to in a minute, that, that this poses in terms of strategy is first, obviously, a question about how the left understands the state. But secondly, I think um, a, a question of how we understand what it means to promote and develop and deepen class power, the power of the working classes in this particular moment, um, both outside and within the state apparatus. Um, and I think the questions that we have to come back to there um, are really around kind of uh, really around democracy and representation, um, as well as obviously things like movement building um, and, uh, and and all the sorts of questions that we've you know th have haunted the left for for many many years, um, ever since the kind of you know the retreat of the 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 you know the proletariat as the revolutionary subject, which was a, a clear um, yeah kind of driving force behind the left politics and debate for you know a hundred years ago or so. I mean, Jeremy, at this point, the, the natural, you know, the, the cleavage in society is that matters politically as far as the left traditionally understands it, which is what Grace is talking about is class. Isn't the issue, and, and, and this is a challenge. Here's the challenge. Let's just, again, it's a bit devil's advocate, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this to you in terms of the problem facing any Labour Party led by whoever. I'm going to give you an example, Barrow. Labour lost Barrow at the last general election. Now, Barrow is, is, is a, a, which would be described as Red Wall, a working class community, and it is, obviously. In Barrow, seven, home ownership is 74%, and child poverty is about 20%, which is still shockingly high. In Hackney, home ownership is 20%, and child poverty is about twice that level. In Islington, which is often uh, ridiculed as Champagne Socialist headquarters, 40% of children grow up in in poverty and again home ownership is much lower and what's happened if you look at the median age of those different constituencies the median age of barrow is much higher than that of places in urban centers that have now become labor strongholds places like croydon croydon north which labor you know winning in 1997 was seen oh my word and now labor just banked croydon uh north, you know and so isn't the issue that what what has happened is essentially and I, I don't like generational conflict, but I'm just spelling out the realities that exist in our society, is home ownership since the financial crash has gone up amongst the over 65s. Quantitative easing has pushed those prices up. Their triple lock in pensions has rightly been protected. Their living standards are better, and they tend to be quite socially conservative on a lot of issues. There are striking exceptions to this, because this always annoys older people when I say this, my mum being one of them. But younger people... Whatever, the, whoever their parents happen to be, by the way, although if they're very affluent, then they might get help with deposits and unpaid internships. They are very unlikely to own their own homes for a very long time, if ever. They're, they can't get council housing. They're instead, they're renting houses which were sold off the right to buy and now run by, uh, rented out by private landlords, way higher uh, rents than, than would have been social rents. Uh, they're, they, they, they're indebted because of university, the half who go to university. Uh, their youth services were slashed when they were young. Uh, the social security cuts hit then. Um, their living standards are lower, significantly lower than their age cohort before the crash. And they're socially progressive. And they are concentrated in urban cities. They're leaving Barrow. The Barrow young people are, are the same, but they take their Labour votes and they take them to Manchester and they take them to Liverpool and they take them to London. 
and they leave behind their parents and grandparents who are more socially conservative, they own their own homes, and that has become a problem electorally for any Labour Party, and ha- that Keir Starmer's team have their own interpretation of what to do about it. What do you think? That was a long question. I want to no, do. What do you, I mean, you, you're completely right. I mean, the account, I mean, the best accounts I know recently of, of describing that process are in uh, Keir Milburn's book, uh, Generation Left, uh, and in a recent book by, by Melinda Cooper and two other um, authors called, called uh, The Asset Economy. And lots of people have, I mean, lots of other people have also made similar points. I mean, you're completely right. I mean, referring back to Carl's interview, I mean, I would, I would have liked to ask him how they're defining working class in those focus groups he's talking about. Because really, um, on an economic definition, it's very difficult to to realistically define as working class people who are not just homeowners, they've paid off their mortgages, they have an asset, they have an asset which, is, which is, continues to escalate in value every single year. And they're living off pensions, which are, which are deriving profits from the stock market. They're not living from selling their labour. So they're not in any meaningful sense working class. I mean, if anything, in, in Marxian terms, they're, they're petty bourgeois. Um, and, and, and they behave exactly the way. And their political behaviour is precisely what a kind of classical Marxian understanding of political behaviour would predict based on, on, on them having that set of economic interests. Um, I mean, one of the problems with the kind of mainstream political science approach, which understands, makes a clear conceptual distinction between people either voting on the basis of their economic interest or their sociological class position or some amorphous concept of, of values. And we're told con- continually now by political scientists that these people vote according to values, not according to interest. It's, well, I think that's a false distinction, actually, that, you know, I think actually their embrace of often in for those voters we're talking about, their embrace of conservative cultural values is a way of expressing and sort of codifying an understanding of their interest and an understanding that if you're a homeowner living off a, a pension linked to the stock market, then in basic material terms, your interests are now bas- are aligned with, you know, investment banks and landlords. They're not really aligned with renters and people who are still working for a living, which is why even in places like Barrow, people who are working age people still mostly voted Labour. Actually, not, not a big, the big problem for Labour is not enough of them voted at all, including people my age, not just very young people, um, which is a massive problem. Now, that is a massive problem. My own view, I have to say, is it's not a problem which is as, tra- is as tractable as Carl's implying or as the Starmer strategy implies. I mean, there's just no real basic material reason why those people should should now leave the Conservative Party. They've been moving over to the Conservative Party one cohort at a time for the past 20 odd years. There's no reason they should they should move. So I think Labour's electoral strategy ultimately has to be predicated on something other than just trying to than trying to just win them back. It has to be predicated on confronting the fact that we have an electoral system in this country which massively over overvalues the votes of swing voters in Barrow and massively undervalues the votes of people renting in Hackney. Uh, and unless we confront that, unless we confront the fact that the first past the post system doesn't work for Labour at all, it, and it has never worked for the left in this country, it's only worked for Labour when Labour's been on a very aggressive kind of right, moving in an aggressively rightward direction, um, then we're really going to have a problem. Because I just don't think there's any, I don't, there is no solution, you know, which involves just winning back those voters, in my view. I don't, they can't, I don't think there's no reason, there's no objective reason for them to come back to Labour. So I think that does, and I, but I think we also have to, reflect on the fact that look you look at the polls the ongoing polls you look at the results of the last election at the end of the day it is still the case that a majority of people in the country vote for a party other than 
And when you ask them what kind of a political program they want to see implemented, a majority of people, I mean, there's this sort of myth put around by the sort of right wing of the Labour Party as much as by anybody else that there's a majority in Britain who are economically progressive but socially conservative. It's not true. The people they really want to win over have that perspective and they themselves have that perspective. But it's not true. A majority of pe people in Britain are not particularly socially conservative. They're not socially liberal. And they are also, like, you know, politically uh, to the left of centre. And the, quite, the big challenge for us is how do we actualise that uh, that, that progressive majority as a political force because one thing that's very clear is that the Labour Party has not been able to do that since the 1960s. The Labour Party basically since the emergence of the re-emergence of the Liberal Party as an effective third party in British politics the British electoral system which is designed for a two-party situation has massively favoured the Conservative Party uh, apart from during the new Labour period when it, it, it only favoured Labour to the extent that Labour was entirely focused on winning the votes of, you know, affluent swing voters uh, in the home county, in the, mostly in the South at the time. So I think we just, there's just no way around it. There's no way around the fact that, that we have, that we do, as you said, Erin, we have a situation in which uh, the Labour vote is, is, is concentrated in cities, is not going to stop being concentrated in cities and is, is, not, is just not represented by the electoral system that we have. Now, there are all kinds of other issues. I mean, I don't think that electoral politics or electoral machinations or changing electoral systems are any kind of alternative to the kind of uh, political issues that Grace was raising. They're not an alternative to building a mass socialist movement. They're not an alternative to community organising. They're not an alternative to the necessary task of rebuilding the political confidence of working people in places like Barrow, which is absolutely crucial. I mean, a crucial part of our strategy has to be to get more of those working age people in Barrow who, who are not sitting there watching their pension pots and their, their asset prices go up, who are working for poor wages and who, when they vote at all, do still vote Labour. We have to get more of them out and voting Labour uh, and, uh, and vote, uh, you know, just voting for anyone, which will usually be voting Labour. But that has to be part of it. But we can't ignore the fact that under the current electoral arrangements in this country, we will continue to be severely disadvantaged. I mean, Grace, what do you think about that? I mean, look, you know, Corbynism attracted more younger voters than have ever voted for the Labour Party in the history. And just factually, I'm not doing this. The polling showed that in 2017, in particular, under 40s, never in the history of democracy have they voted for Labour in those numbers, including 1997. Quite unlike 1983, when the young voted Tory and so did their parents and grandparents, or, or they most the biggest number voted Tory. Um, and yet fewer old older people voted Labour than ever in the history of democracy at the same time, which is how you've ended up, we've ended up in the situation we're in now. I mean, that really does cause havoc with our understanding and analysis of class conflict in society, because this generational conflict, which instinctively I despise, I hate, I think it's toxic stuff, generational politics and you've got to win people over regardless of age uh, and you've got to build a coalition of people with the same economic interest but there is the complications of the economic and the cultural which are causing these problems and just on the point of electoral reform peter o'donovan did ask you know labor going for voting reform and also a universal basic income if you've got any views on that so i think i mean i agree with a lot of what Jeremy um, just said, uh, you know, the big problem here is the um, the way in which that over decades um, working class voters have simply dropped out of the electorate. Um, and this is a I, I mentioned this a lot, but this is a there's a great book on this um, 
called The New Politics of Class by um, Jeff Evans and James Tiley, who look at how since 1997 um, working class voters have dropped out the electorate. Now, this then brings us to the question as to what is class. Now, there are two questions here. Why do they drop out the electorate and, and what is class? Because the definitions that they use are occupational. So since the 60s, we've had this idea of class as broadly defined by your um, your kind of your occupational position uh, and there being a kind of a stratification that's based on, you know, five or six different kinds of class. Um, and yeah, I think that's, you know, often the, the way in which a lot of people understand it. You know, they understand this uh, class differentiation as something that is to do with the kind of job you have combined with things like your kind of social and cultural capital, um, which is obviously something that was popularized a bit later. Um, and to a lesser extent, if at all, um, the the kind of assets that you hold. Now, the problem with trying to analyze class at the level of the of just a kind of national economy is that class is formed, um, you know, as part of um, the relations of production that govern capitalism. And capitalism is a system that you know exists at the level of the world economy. We're talking about the capitalist world system here, and. What uh, looks like the kind of dramatic expansion expansion of a kind of of a middle class, um, you know, in in the global north, uh, is really the kind of um, reorientation of capitalism towards a, a system that's much more kind of spatially sorted. So, you know, the vast majority of of working class people in the capitalist world system live in the global south, uh, and a lot of the kind of professional managerial jobs that make um, up the kind of middle section of of, uh, of um, the, the kind of income spectrum in the global north are about managing profits that are generating elsewhere. They're about managing, rationalizing a production process, thinking about issues to do with the realization of, of, uh, of profits, so about, you know, selling, marketing, etc. Um, and uh, that is basically what kind of comprises this kind of professional managerial layer that sits between the kind of 1% and what we would ordinarily kind of class as, as the working class. Um, although, interestingly, there is a level, I think, of kind of proletarianization of some of those what would usually be, be seen as kind of middle middle class jobs. So, you know, when you look at it in, in that sense, we do have a much more polarized system, but it's one in which that middle rung plays a really, really important role, as we've just been hearing. And indeed, that was the whole project, the political economic project of neoliberalism. It was to kind of make these guys um, ally with these guys at the very top, with kind of some support from this, this uh, this uh, kind of top end of, of the working classes, top end in terms of in terms of salaries, and it was done very successfully through the extension of home ownership um, to middle and working class people through the privatization of pensions, basically by encouraging everyone to think of themselves as a kind of mini capitalist with a stake in the the uh, the expansion of the system. And that, as we've just been hearing from both of you, came crashing down. That bargain came crashing down in in two thousand and eight. Um, and the the kind of the the, the framework the division i suppose that we're left with is one that looks intergenerational which actually is is it has material foundations um so yeah the kind of the big thing the big challenge um is really about uh centering that divide getting people to understand what class is so there was this i don't know if you guys saw the really interesting study that said that like you know loads and loads of people who are by any standard definition either professional managerial class or like upper class see themselves as working class because their parents or grandparents were working class right most people don't really get what class is in a material sense they kind of see it as this cultural thing so i think you know having a um, a kind of approach to communications that centers that class divide is really, really important. And it's what Corbynism did quite well. The other issue then is the fact that the vast majority of people who are actually in the working class um, have either kind of slowly been seeping out of the electorate or have just become generally, even if they're in the electorate, um, 
quite disillusioned and often quite passive because of, and again, this comes back to this really, really important question um, about, uh, you know, how we can really imagine a world beyond capitalism in the absence of an agent to deliver it, which is how could things be different, right? I mean, certainly when I was on the doorstep in 2019 and to an extent in 2017, the biggest question wasn't necessarily how you how are you going to pay for it it sometimes was but underneath that when you probed it's like just this real profound deep-seated um resignation to the way things are which i think comes from the separation of this class uh from any kind of political representation or actually you know broader than electoral representation representation in the unions in kind of various other forms of social life that I think is the big question. It's how we center this class divide, how we understand class, and then how we give um, that class once you know it realizes that it exists a sense of its own power and agency. That is the obvious problematic of any kind of socialist um, movement anywhere in the world. Now it's much easier said than done. Um, and I have a lot of ideas about how we can do that. And I know that there are actually much, many more people who are kind of who work on this on the ground and who have a much more practical sense as to how we do that. But that, I think, is the real problem. Finally, I just want to talk about left strategy. Now, I'm going to play a little clip, which is a clip from the PPS of Keir Starmer. Um, and uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to play it and just just get we'll talk about it when it comes on. So yes, I've got a loyalty to him, but I'm also a pragmatist and a realist. So all this nonsense about so-and-so, so-and-so's going to challenge him fully. Yeah, bring it on, because it's nonsense. Just making themselves look silly. Talking on Zoom, that's all they're doing. Talking to each other on Zoom. Come into the real world, my loves, and let's talk about the damage that's been done and the repair work that we're doing. And that's my point on it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Harris, who is the uh, MP for Swansea's. I, by the way, really lovely person. Always got on well with her. Um, different politics, but that's how it goes. Um, yeah, I mean, it was certainly, uh, yeah, certainly one way of putting it. I suppose she. What 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 I suppose I would I would ask is what should the left's approach within the Labour Party and without the Labour Party? It's kind of hard to ask this question because we'll locked in at home so there's quite a limit to political activity by definition um obviously Keir Starmer himself won by winning over a very significant chunk of people who voted for Jamie Corbyn in both leadership elections it's indisputably the case and it's also the case that under Corbyn's leadership a lot of those same people got annoyed very understandably legitimately 
with the right of the Labour Party for constantly carping and everything was bad and wrong. And they just found them whingy moaners. Why can't you focus on the Tories? And there is a sense often in Labourism of that. There's a sense of uh, this, this sense of loyalism to the movement. And whoever, you know, my party, right or wrong, does very much kick in. Uh, it's, it's very much part and parcel of the Labourism. So how does the left articulate its demands for its policy agenda and how does it advance them, bearing in mind the institutional problems or challenges, and also bearing in mind how does it win that coalition? Start with you, Jeremy. Well, I would really like to say that the left should do that by putting forward a positive case, by putting forward a positive programme, by publicly, uh, you know, by publicly appealing uh, both to other to other sections of the party and to the public and to uh, the the you know. Uh, and to um and even people in other parties you know to support this program and asking and for and expecting an honest hearing in the media in the public sphere and in the party uh, unfortunately i think the past year or two years has made very clear that it would be naive to expect that to work i mean i think one of the problems i think i would slightly question what you were saying just then Owen, about um, people having really having the sense of my party right or wrong i mean until quite recently i would have agreed with that that that's what that is the attitude of a lot of people in the party and in fact historically going back to when i was much younger i always thought that was one of the big problems with labor because too many people just didn't really care you know care what labor's program was at all as long as it won elections and i thought that was a problem but now it seems to me i mean this is something i was i've been thinking about I've, I've been putting together an issue um, an edit, I mean, with Lawrence Bassett and I are editing a special issue of Political Quarterly about Corbynism with people from different sections of the party. And I was having a long conversation over email with the sort of distinguished political science scholar, Eric Shaw. And one idea that I really got from that, you know, sort of came out of this conversation I was having with Eric was that I'm not sure that anybody, I'm not sure that the various factions, that there are that many people now in the party who are actually willing to support to ultimately put aside their factional differences for the, the idea of the good of the party. I mean, to some extent, I think that's an idea that sort of died under New Labour with the with the kind of determination of the most militant sections of, of New Labour to completely marginalise the left. And certainly you look at the behaviour of the right of the party during the Corbyn years, including, you know, in, in, up around the 2017 election. And, and I think you have to say it's just not true. I mean, they weren't willing to accept uh, my party right or wrong and maybe that's not even new actually i mean maybe if you go right back to the early 80s you can say well the same thing happened with the sdp split that ultimately parts of the problem is that with this ultimately ultimately the right wing of the party is willing to wreck labor's electoral chances like rather than accept the possibility of a left led of a of a government uh, led by the labor left and that's arguably that's a persistent feature of the labor party and again i'm sorry to keep harping on about this but maybe that is just a persistent feature of a of an electoral system which just forces people with very different and in some sense opposed ideologies to work together as part of the same party so how does the left respond to that well i have to say i don't want to preach like antagonism sectarianism and division but I do think that a massive problem, not just for the Labour Party, not just for the Labour left, but really for the health of our political culture in this country, is frankly the sheer naivety of a lot of people on the sort of centre left, including a lot of Labour members, who are, are just don't want to don't want to hear or don't want to see the extent to which their MPs. Uh, the people running their local parties, the people running their local regions are deeply, deeply committed 
to a form of politics which ultimately you know puts their own institutional interest ahead of uh, the long-term goal of Labour government and certainly ahead of any programme of actual social transformation. Uh, so I think part of what we have to do is find ways of, of educating people about that and exposing that and to some extent forcing debates on those issues uh, without being seen simply as wreckers and being seen as kind of inherently divisive. That's a, that's a real challenge. It, you know, I don't even really know how we go about doing it, but I think ultimately until we until more Labour members, Labour voters recognize the extent to which we're really you know there is a section there's a section of our own party of our party bureaucracy there's a section of that professional managerial class which grace was talking about who are all who are deeply committed to their own interest and not to advancing any kind of even minimally egalitarian political agenda uh then if until we can do that i don't think we can really get that far That's yeah grace oh go on grace finally i mean what what do you think bringing in you know the pandemic and you know, the, the the absolute seismic upheaval that we're currently living through in terms of the economic system, what should the left really, its key demands and its strategy in terms of how it goes about those demands? Yeah, so I think, I mean, a lot of the work that I've been doing at the moment um, has been looking at... Uh, really centering this idea of kind of, um, of, of, of democracy, democratizing institutions as a way of um, both kind of facilitating struggle within those institutions and also of empowering people, of giving people a sense of their own power and highlighting that, that class division that I've been talking about. I mean, the way that the right succeeds um, is by winning at the class war while saying it doesn't exist. Um, and, uh, you know, by, uh, and, and that is also something that, that Starmerism and that, that Fabianism often feeds into, because again, there is this idea that the class isn't important, that there is this idea of the general good, and we can all just kind of get there by doing some, some different policies. Um, I think, you know, that understanding of, of a class divided society needs to be reflected in an understanding of what capitalist institutions are and what all institutions that exist within a capitalist system are and what they, they kind of serve to do. Um, so the state, of course, I've talked about already, you know, we need to be seeing the state as a site of class struggle and um, having a, a strategy that involves building up power outside of state institutions in order to fight a battle within those institutions, but also the same thing about our political parties. So, you know, I don't see any institution within capitalism, even the Labour Party, as something that's fixed. I see it as, again, reflecting um, wider sets of, of struggles that are taking place outside it. Now, that isn't to say there isn't some level of path dependency, because, of course, there is. You know, the bureaucracy um, has a lot more staying power um, than, uh, you know, than in, in many other uh, institutions, which is, of course, what makes it, an, you know, an institution. It's like the fact that you have this level of stability, even as the world outside changes. But that isn't to say it's completely fixed. So, you know, I, I do think that struggling within and outside the Labour Party, um, to coin a phrase, uh, is something that is is broadly worthwhile, especially as we recognise that we are living through this very, very deep-seated organic crisis, which is manifesting itself in all these different ways. Now, coming back to this point about democracy, the reason I think it's important is because whenever, you know, you're thinking about um, about about struggle, if you're thinking about kind of how to boost class consciousness, if you're thinking about how to actually win specific battles, if you're thinking about how to give people a sense of their own power and agency, I think this question of representation and, and democracy is really, really important. So whether we're talking about representation within the firm, which is one important institution within capitalism, through the labour movement, through other forms of, of organising in the state, um, or within political parties, these questions of democracy are, are all really, really important. And I think even, actually, it's, it's a powerful 
powerful narrative even um, in the kind of popular debates at this point in time. Because again, coming back to this question about what the state is and how the left understands the state, saying we're going to do the, what the Tories do, but we're going to be nicer about it. We're going to give you more things. We're going to use the state in a nicer way. Just trust us after you know the Labour Party has let so many voters down for so many decades, it's not going to work. I think the only way to really put some kind of clear water between the left and the Tories is to say we are the party of giving people power over their own lives. We are the party of, of decentralising, of handing power down, of democratising institutions, of socialising wealth, not of saying we're the good guys, trust us and we'll make your lives better, but actually saying we trust you to make the decisions that are going to make your lives better. Um, so, yeah, I kind of think that question of, of democracy, of representation, of power has to be at the centre of what the left is arguing for and not just arguing for, but actually fighting for um, and, and building. So, you know, I think focusing just on the Labour Party and just on what it takes to win an election and all these sorts of things. I know we've said this over and over again, but it's just it's not, I think, where we should be right now. Corbynism was a response to this organic crisis, which said that if we can just grab the state, because the state is really important in um, the process of the reproduction of capitalism right now for lots of different reasons. If we can just grab the state then we can change it and everything will be different. Um, and it was a shortcut. Everyone knew it was a shortcut. No one actually who was involved in that project thought that the state was this neutral entity that you could just grab hold of and reorient. But it was seen as a shortcut, as a way of kind of, you know, getting hold of some of these important institutions and shifting them before we could actually shift the balance of power outside of those institutions. Now, I think our focus has to be on that balance of power outside those institutions. Um, and I know, again, it's easier said than done. How do we organize in communities? How do we organize in the workplace? All of these questions are so, so, so big, but there are people who are working on them. Um, and, you know, I think we should really be actually be placing them at the front of our movement, rather than just thinking about MPs, about the Labour Party, about all these questions um, that seem to you know, take up so much of our time. Grace and Jeremy, thank you so, so much for allowing me to empty the contents of your vast intellects onto YouTube, Facebook and podcasts and whatever else. Uh, it was a huge honour, Susie. It was uh, loads for people to think about. Very big picture. We went big picture today. Which is which is great because often we do get it is easy when you work in political journalism for as we can see in our national coverage for it to be reduced to essentially a a pretty tedious soap opera. So we've put things in its in the in the broader social and political context in which they deserve to be heard. So thank you both uh, hugely. And people do follow uh, both of them on social media and their work. They've got loads. Grace has got an amazing book coming out. I I'm not allowed to say that. I don't know. Anyway, oh, oh, get the Corona Crash. Buy <laughs> that book. You can buy it now. <laughs> buy the book. Buy the book immediately. Right now. The Corona Crash for people listening on the podcast. Uh, so um, keep warm because it's horrible out there. Genuinely, I went for a run before. Horrific. Um, and I will I will see you both soon somehow. Thanks, Thanks guys. Awesome. Bye. That was great. Cheers. Thank you for listening and watching. Uh, stay warm. Look after yourselves and I will see or speak to you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 